Let's take your Bibles and turn once again to the Gospel of Mark as we continue through this pivotal chapter, chapter 8. We um, said earlier that the, this, this chapter is, is an important chapter in the gospel, and it is, it is pivotal in that we see in it a change of direction. And from now on, Christ is, is traveling. And kind of this next section, some commentators call it a traveling section, because as you know, um, Christ's ministry has kind of been centered in Galilee around the shores the northern shores of the Sea of Galilee. And actually, the, the events of this text happen even farther north from there um, in Caesarea Philippi. Um, so in a geographic sense, things are changing, but also in a very personal sense. In both of those ways, Christ is headed for the cross. They are headed to Jerusalem. Christ is headed for the cross. And that is going to be something that, that kind of overshadows the rest of this book and Christ's teaching. Um, there's also a change of focus in the coming chapters. And up to this point, it has been just seems like one miracle after another. Just, you know, the, the pace has been relentless in a sense. And we've seen one example of Christ's authority on display, one after the other. And in this next section coming up in the, in the coming chapters, we'll see more teaching from Christ as he teaches the disciples how to better understand him and his mission. So if we were to say that chapter 8 is the hinge of this book, we would have to say that this text, and perhaps the one that follows that we'll deal with the next time we come together, those would have to be the pen of that hinge, because it's so important what we're about to see in this. And in our text, Jesus poses two vitally important questions to the disciples. And the response to the second, you'll know is what we have commonly been called Peter's great confession. So let us pray and then let us read this text from Mark 8, beginning with verse 27. Let us pray. Lord God, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Lord, we want to hide it in our hearts that we might not sin against you. And Lord, we know that it is, it is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. It's given for our correction and and for our instruction lord we thank you for your word and lord may it be active in the lives of your people tonight lord we pray that you would bless the proclamation of your word may it go forth with power lord and if there's any here that have not responded to the free offer of the gospel may this be their day of salvation as they face this question of who is jesus christ lord may the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O God, our rock and our salvation, we pray. Amen. Mark 8, beginning with verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them not to tell, he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. Amen. And we praise God that he has spoken to us in his holy and inerrant word. 
This past week, I was privileged to see a school play that one of my children was in, and I was impressed at how they could change the mood of the play and what was happening within the scenes of the play by the coloration of the backdrop behind the actors. And in the Gospel of Mark, as I've said a number of times as we've gathered together, there's three questions that color the backdrop of this, of this Gospel. Hopefully you remember what they are. Who is Jesus? What did he come to do? And what does it mean to follow him? And the answer in our text we see is as plain as it can be to that first question. But before Jesus poses that crucial question that Peter answers decidedly, he gives them, he kind of gives them a softball. He gives them something to warm up on. And he asks them a first question about who What do other people say about him? And those two vital questions still ring down through the corridors of time to us today. And we too, like Peter and the disciples, must face the timeless question of who is Jesus Christ. Those two questions will form the outline of our our message this evening. Who do people say that I am and who do you say that I am? Now, in first century Palestine, it was not uncommon for a rabbi to have men who would enjoy hanging out with him and learning from him. And we see the model of of Christ and his disciples, and, and that was not necessarily uncommon in that day and time. However, the tradition typically was is that the disciples of a certain rabbi would ask the rabbi questions, and they would learn as they heard his answers. But here in the text, we see something different. We see Jesus asking the questions. Jesus is posing the questions to his disciples to test their understanding. And the first one is, who do people say that I am? Jesus is is engaging their minds, getting them to think about who he is by asking them first, who do people say that he is? They respond saying, well, there's, there's varying opinions Some say you're John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others say that you're just one of the prophets. Now we know John the Baptist, we've encountered John the Baptist here in the text so far. We saw him in the first chapter, we saw that he baptized Jesus. He was preaching a message of repentance from the very beginning. He was the forerunner of Christ. We see at Christ's baptism, the Father speaking the Spirit descending like a dove, and Christ being baptized there. But then we learn, in just two verses after that account, we learn that John the Baptist was placed in prison. We see him again, as we saw in chapter 6, where Herod, where we were given the account of something that had happened previously of John being beheaded. You remember that account where where John... um, in, or I mean, Herod, in, a, in, in seemingly a, a drunken, lustful state, makes the claim and says to his, his wife's daughter, you know, what, what would you like? And she asks for the head of John the Baptist on a charger. And he has to, to save face, deliver that in front of his friends. And we see the end of the life of John the Baptist there. And it's also mentioned in that text in verses 14 to 16 that Herod somehow thought Jesus was John the Baptist raised from the dead. Probably his guilt was part of that. 
because there was a similar message between the message of Christ and the message of John the Baptist. They, they had a similar message. They, had, they were rugged and they were uncaring of what the religious elite of that day thought. So we can see that, that there, it would be natural in a sense to see a connection with them to, and for Herod as well as probably others at that time to think that Jesus might have been John the Baptist. But we know, of course, he was not. The second option that the disciples put forward as what people say about Jesus is that he's Elijah. Well, again, we recognize that he was not Elijah, but yet the end of the Old Testament casts a glimpse about Elijah that if you read it in the fourth chapter of Malachi, you understand a little bit why the people would have thought that. You see there that, that the prophecy is given, and it's, it's just in the next to the last verse of the Old Testament. The prophecy is given, given, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So it's saying, the prophet Malachi is saying that there's going to be someone that comes before the Messiah that heralds his coming. Now remember how Elijah, how his life ended. I started to say how he died, but he didn't die. He was caught up in a fiery chariot into heaven. So you think about that, and if if people were a little superstitious in reading this prophecy... And thinking about how Elijah was taken up and he didn't die. How they might think Jesus was Elijah. But we know of course he is not. We know from Matthew 11 and also in similar language in Mark 9. That John the Baptist was the fulfillment of that prophecy from from, uh, Malachi chapter 4. John the Baptist was the forerunner. So Jesus was not John the Baptist and not Elijah. The third option that's, that's put out there by the disciples of, of what the public opinion is of Jesus is that he's simply one of the prophets. Well, we, we, if we think about the prophets of the Old Testament and we think about Christ's ministry and teaching, you can see some similarities. What we need to remember is that at the time of, of Christ's birth, there had been a long period of silence from the prophets. There no prophet had spoken for 400 years. It had been 400 years since Malachi had penned those words and the canon of the Old Testament had been closed. They read the prophets. The, the devout Jews of that time, they studied the prophets. They sought to interpret the prophets. They memorized the words of the prophets. And yet there had been a prophetic silence for four centuries. Why? Well, why did they want this? Well, because the prophets revealed who God is. Highly religious Jews knew they were supposed to do it. They probably did it out of a sense of duty to the scriptures. And devout God-fearing Jews desired to know the God of Moses and Elijah and Isaiah and Malachi. They hungered for the words of the prophets. And many who saw Christ wondered if he was a genuine prophet on the caliber of these men. Ever since Moses had spoken way back in Deuteronomy 18 of a prophet that would come from among their brothers, the people had been looking for that special prophet that would be somehow different and one to whom they would listen to 
in some special way, Moses told them. There was likely much talk about Jesus and much speculation about who he was and what he was there to do. Remember how Mark has just painted the picture again and again in these accounts that we've been studying so far of these crowds, these huge crowds that followed him everywhere he went. So we see that, that in, in both the feeding of the 5,000 and the feeding of the 4,000, there were, there were huge crowds that were everywhere. And we've talked about how that, that likely a lot of them were just simply there for the spectacle or just kind of out of curiosity. They didn't have a clear understanding. But we trust that there were some that were devout and some that were really trying to understand if Jesus was the Messiah, if he was the, prom- the promised one. He certainly did seem to carry authority ...with him in a way that was carried by the prophets of old. Remember what they said. The characteristic phrase of the Old Testament prophets was... ...thus saith the Lord. They spoke God's words. And so they saw the authority of Christ... ...and and they had to wonder, what is this? he, He has to be prophetic in some sense. The prophets of old, they were the mouthpiece of God himself. And Jesus shared some of that authority... Authority over the wind and waves and demons and sickness and disease. He even had the audacity to forgive sins, we read in Mark chapter 2. And everyone knew that only God could do that. And all these descriptions that the disciples threw out there had elements of truth to them. Each of them might seem plausible to the casual observer, yet each of them was inadequate. Each of them only hinted at the true identity of who Jesus is. They were false, though, because they were incomplete. And it seems that our own day, in our own day, we are facing some of the same things. You think about even even false religions talk about Jesus. I think about Islam and how it, it recognizes Jesus as a prophet, and yet it says that he is inferior to their prophet that they follow, Muhammad, in his teaching. They deny that Christ is God. That's that's 1.8 billion people, folks. That's a fourth of the world's population that follows that. I think about liberal theologians in the 19th century and continuing to today have questioned the authority of God's word. They they started out seeking to to, um, understand scripture in in a modern, rationalistic, scientific way of thinking. And in doing so, they placed themselves above Scripture. They placed themselves as an authority and science as an authority over Scripture. And in doing so, they sought to remove any hint of the miraculous and often deny the deity of Christ. One landmark work in this movement was the Jesus Seminar of the 1970s. Some of you may be familiar with it, where, which claimed to be trying to find the real historical Jesus, so they said, that was supposedly hidden behind the myths and legends of Christianity, they said. And they applied this elaborate four-part color-coding system to the words of Christ, and, and they analyzed the words of Christ, and they, and they said, well, well they, they ranked them between most likely that he said to the least likely they said. And in the end, surprise, surprise, only about 18% of the words that Christ 
is recorded to it, that Jesus spoke that we have in Holy Scripture, only about 18%, they say, they think he really spoke. They are placing themselves as authority over Scripture. They deny the truth of God's Word. They strip it of its authority. And instead of coming to it humbly, seeking to see how God would speak to them, they come to try to analyze Scripture as the authority over it. Many people today claim to believe in Jesus, yet refuse to believe His claims. They see him as a good example. They see him as a good teacher. They see him as a good man. Yet they have never answered the question rightly answered by Peter on that day. So Jesus then brings it home and he he speaks to their heart. He gets to, to, to right where they're living. After giving them the, the soft pitch, he says to them, who do, after saying, who do people say that I am? He presses them to consider what is in their own heart. What others have said or are saying really doesn't matter compared with the hearts of his followers. Jesus asks the question in the most pointed way. In fact, a literal um, uh, translation of this would be, but you, who do you say that I am? He says to the disciples. Peter, you know, always the one that's, that's eager to speak up, speaks for the disciples and utters those four words, you are the Christ. And in just one short sentence, he speaks volumes. He proclaims Christ to be the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy of the coming king. I had the privilege of of teaching the the, uh, Intro to Christ Church uh, class for children this afternoon. And we talked about Jesus Christ. And and you know this, so it's it's old news to you. But Christ, of course, is not Jesus' last name. It is a title which means anointed one. It's the Greek version of the Hebrew word where we get Messiah, the one who is anointed. In the Old Testament, men were set apart for special tasks by being anointed. We think about Samuel when he was told to go anoint King David. We think of of priests that were anointed to set them apart for their holy service. The anointing was Significant as it was a visual manifestation of the call that God had placed upon them. Reminded them of the power of the Holy Spirit that would be upon them to accompany them in the work that they were called to do. And one commentator helps us understand that that toward the close of the Old Testament period, the, the word anointed seemed to assume a special meaning because it denoted the ideal king anointed and empowered by God to deliver his people and establish his righteous kingdom. We think about the, what God told David in 2 Samuel 7, that, that his kingdom and, and his throne would be established forever going forward. And those who really truly understood that were looking for the Messiah. Jesus, of course, was all of those three offices that we've just said, prophet, priest, and king. He, he was the prophet, we've already talked about that, but in that he reveals God the Father to us. He speaks God's word. He shows us the will of God for our salvation. Just as the prophets of old spoke the word of God and revealed God's will, so Jesus does now and forever. I think of the, those beautiful words that, that the author of Hebrews cho- chose to use 
to introduce the epistle of Hebrews and where he says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophet, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son. Thou art the Christ, the anointed one. Christ is the prophet, but not just a prophet. He is the prophet, the quintessential prophet, the final prophet who reveals God to us. He is our priest. He fulfills that role. Hebrews calls him the great high priest. I love that phrase. He is the priest in his once offering up of himself a sacrifice to satisfy divine justice, our catechism tells us, and reconcile us to God and make continual intercession for us. He is the anointed priest who ever lives to make intercession for us. He is the king. This may have been foremost in the mind of Peter when he uttered those important words. And he probably, like so many others of his day, were looking for a king that would overthrow the Romans. There had been promised the king to sit upon the throne of David back in 2 Samuel 7, as we said. And Jesus was that king, although his kingdom would look so very different than David's. Christ's kingdom, as, as you know, is a spiritual kingdom. But he does bring us, subdue us to himself. He rules and defends us, and he will return and will ultimately put all things under his feet. The second question of membership into our church says two very significant things about Jesus Christ. And I've been going over these with the children and trying to get them to remember those two things that there's so much more that we could say about the Lord Jesus. But the second question asks, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone for salvation as he is offered in the gospel? And, and I've stressed to them, Jesus is the Son of God. He is God himself and he is the Savior of sinners. He is the only hope of salvation. This question that, that Jesus put before Peter is a question that ultimately everyone will have to answer. My question for you is, have you recognized him as the Christ, as the Son of God, as the promised one, prophet, priest, and king, as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? If you have not confessed with Peter that he is the Christ, I have news for you. ...that you will one day. I pray that it would be today... ...because one day you will say it. Scripture tells us that every knee will bow... ...and every tongue will confess... ...that Jesus Christ is Lord. Everyone will confess that. Either in repentance and faith... ...in becoming a follower of Christ... ...or in sorrow at the judgment seat... ...recognizing with remorse... ...what you should have done... ...in this life when you had opportunity. So I beg of you, come to Christ... ...so you can, with Peter and with Christ's disciples... ...and with all of Christ's followers... ...say that the Lord Jesus is the Christ. Our final verse, verse 30, tells us... ...that Jesus firmly instructed the disciples... ...not to tell anyone about him. Now, we may think that's strange... ...in, in, in our way of thinking, but... Jesus knew that the disciples' knowledge was in its infancy. And we'll see that in the next passage as, as Peter responds with, with um, just shock and, 
and um, disdain even at the Lord Jesus when he has when he mentions that he is going to the cross. Peter's appalled that Christ would have to face the cross. But Jesus charges them not to spread the message just yet. He had more teaching, and the time of his death was not yet come, although it is drawing near. But for us today, we have God's word. We have the full revelation of Jesus Christ. We should have a full understanding of who he is. Sometimes Christians act like Jesus is saying those words to them. Don't tell anyone about me. But that was not for us. That was for the disciples at that time. We are to tell the glory of Christ. We are commanded to go to tell, to make disciples, and to call all men to confess with Peter that Jesus is the Christ. Let us pray.